It is good to worship with all of you who are here today in person, as well as all of you who are worshiping with us online. I thank God for all who have led us in this service of worship and for the beautiful anthem our musicians just presented in worship. We're in a sermon series called The Healing Savior, and we're looking at many of the healing stories in the four Gospels of the New Testament. Today, I want to draw your attention to a healing story in Luke chapter 22. I'll read verses 47 through 53 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of today's sermon is Healing the Opposition. While he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of of darkness. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jesus has retreated with his disciples to the shadows of Gethsemane, a garden just outside the city of Jerusalem. He knows the authorities are on their way to arrest him, and he knows the cross looms in his future. So he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then he goes to the disciples who are sleeping when they were supposed to be praying. And he says, get up and pray that you may not come to the time of trial. Just then a crowd appears with torches, clubs, and swords. The chief priests elders, the temple police, and a group of Roman soldiers have all banded together against Jesus and his disciples. The battle lines have been drawn. The time of trial has come. The opposition is guided by Judas, who used to be considered so trustworthy that he was the treasurer of the disciples yet now proves to be deceptive, deceitful, 
and duplicitous. Judas, Jesus says, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? Although he is beleaguered, Jesus knows what's going on and he's in control of the situation. Judas's betrayal can't stop him. In fact, it only advances his mission to the cross. The Greek term translated betray is paradidonai, which can also be rendered handed over. This is an important term in the New Testament that often applies to the death of Christ. In Mark 15:1, the religious leaders handed him over to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. In John 19:16, Pilate handed him over to the chief priests to be crucified. Here in Luke 22:48, Judas hands him over to the authorities to be arrested. But there is a divine hand at work in all of this handing over. Romans 8:32 says, God did not withhold his own son, but handed him over for us all. And Ephesians 5, 2 says, Christ loved us and handed himself over for us. Jesus is not floating on arbitrary waves of happenstance. He's directing the ship. Jesus is no casualty of circumstance. He is orchestrating things. Even as Judas hands him over to the authorities, Jesus hands himself over to go to the cross. It's only a 15-minute walk from Gethsemane into the vast Judean wilderness. Jesus could have absconded into the night long before now to make his getaway. Instead, he retreated to a place he frequented, a place where Judas would know to find him, a place where he has waited prayerfully for the authorities to come and apprehend him. Judas is playing right into Jesus' hands. The disciples don't get it, though. When they see the opposition lining up against them with clubs and swords, they ask, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Notice the impulse to violence. They are yet to accept that Jesus is the suffering Savior, the meek Messiah, the crucified King, whose kingdom is not of this world. So right after asking the question, they strike. Actually, Peter is the one who strikes, according to John 18. He asked Jesus a question and didn't even bother waiting for an answer. Dad, should I use your credit card for this? Mom, should I cut bangs? Boss, should I go on home for the weekend? Coach, should I go into the game now? Better wait for an answer. Especially when consulting Christ. Prayer is no perfunctory preface to doing our own will. 
To pray to Jesus as Lord is to submit to his way, not to assert our own way. Not long ago, I was sending a text message to somebody, and it takes me forever to type up these messages. And I finished it, and I wrote at the bottom, In Christ, comma, Noel. And I looked back over it one last time before sending, which I've learned is a good idea. And at the bottom, I noticed it said, I'm Christ, comma, Noel. Autocorrect did not get that one correct. I am not Christ, nor are you. But when we rush ahead with our own impulses, instead of listening carefully for Christ's word, we operate as if we are in charge, as if we are our own Lord and Savior, as if we're saying, you know what? I'm Christ. This can produce terrible consequences. When Peter rushed into wrong-headed action, he literally lashed out and hurt somebody. He drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's slave, whose name was Malchus, according to John 18. Bible scholar Craig Keener notes, the servant of a high priest could wield considerable power and probably was wielding a prominent role in this expedition. Perhaps Malchus was at the front of the enemy line. I imagine Peter swung at his neck, Malchus ducked, and the blade ended up slicing off his right ear. It's a bit grisly to picture Malchus's severed ear lying on the ground and the side of his head bleeding profusely, but that's what happened. The tension between the two sides erupted into violent conflict. This was a prime moment for things to escalate all the more, you know, next a soldier would strike back at Peter, then Bartholomew would tackle an officer, and it would turn into an all-out brawl. But instead, Jesus steps in and takes control. Remember, this is the same man who calmed the storm. The same man who commanded the sea. The same man who walked on water and the same man who raised the dead. Imagine if he had wanted to tussle with these guys. Imagine if he had wanted to be a macho Messiah. Imagine if he had wanted to rule by force what he could have done to these men in this moment. But he said, no more of this. Let that word ring out at every impulse to violence. No more of this. Let that word ring out at every impulse to revenge. No more of this. Let that word ring out at every impulse to sin. Peter hadn't waited for an answer, but he got one now. No more of this, Jesus said. And Jesus touched Malchus's ear and healed it. His stroke of healing was just as quick as Peter's stroke of harm. I imagine Jesus picking up the severed ear and reattaching it to Malchus's head in one tender swoop. 
I kind of picture him welding the ear back on to Malchus's head with supernatural surgical power. However it happened, the sword's harm was neutralized by a healing touch. The damage caused by human sin was repaired by the righteousness of Christ. Evil was overcome by good. Christ does not want violence carried out for his sake. He went around healing people, not harming people, even his enemies. That's what's so striking about this particular healing. The last healing miracle Christ performs before he dies on the cross. We've seen him heal outcast persons. We've seen him heal destitute persons. We've seen him heal chronically ill persons. We've seen him heal paralyzed persons. We've seen him heal young persons and older persons. We've seen him heal Gentile persons and Jewish persons and Samaritan persons. But here, he's healing a bad guy. Here, Jesus is healing the opposition. On June 6th, 1944, also known as D-Day, the 101st Airborne Division parachuted into a small French town called Angeville au Plan. Two American medics named Robert Wright and Kenneth Moore were part of the group. The medics took station in a little 12th century church while the troops were immediately engaged in fierce fighting against the German forces. Amid the battle, as it raged, the medics would run out and bring in any wounded soldiers they could find. They treated all the injured, whether American or German. They had one condition, though. You had to leave your weapons outside. One German soldier refused to lay down his gun at first, but when he realized it was either give up the gun or die from his injury, he put it down and came inside the church. Wounded soldiers from both sides were placed on the wooden pews and their bloodstains from 77 years ago are still visible on the church's pews today. The church now features a stained glass window depicting the 101st Airborne Landing, as well as another window commemorating the heroic healing ministry of those two medics, Wright, as well as his colleague. Amid the battle lines drawn at Gethsemane, Jesus was rather like a medic. He was no neutral party, but he was there to bring healing, even to the opposition. They don't call him the great physician for nothing. They don't call him the prince of peace for nothing either. He said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. And he was a peacemaker at Gethsemane. He said in Luke 6, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And he loved his enemies at Gethsemane. 
So many times in everyday life, people line up against one another in a variety of ways, in a variety of contexts, for a variety of reasons in order to oppose one another, to demonize one another, to battle one another. And we fail to see that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what the Apostle Paul calls cosmic powers of this present darkness. It's like Jesus says in verse 53, this is the power of darkness. When we see that the fundamental problem is spiritual forces of evil, we can see the persons on the other side as fellow human beings created and beloved by God, and we can work with Christ toward healing, toward peace. We can even turn the church into a place of healing, much like those medics did. What if Christ is lifted up so high on the cross that he rises above our tendency to dehumanize the opposition and instead teaches us how to love our enemies? Enemies are pretty much all he has at Gethsemane. For Judas is not the only one who betrays him. Peter, the lead disciple, who's supposed to be on Jesus' side, is swinging the sword, still wanting Jesus to take the throne by force, still not understanding that Jesus is to die on the cross. Bible scholar D.A. Carson writes, Peter's bravery is not only useless, it is a denial of the work to which Jesus has just consecrated himself. Indeed, it's difficult to tell whose betrayal is worse. Judas is brazenly deceitful and intentionally opposes Christ, while Peter asks Jesus questions he doesn't want answered and is doing everything he can to keep Jesus away from the cross. Darkness has fallen over the whole garden, Not just one side. Judas is unfaithful in betraying Christ. Peter is unholy in defending Christ. The disciples are unfocused in praying with Christ. And the authorities are unjust in arresting Christ who is perfectly innocent. It looks like everyone is caught up in the darkness except the light of the world himself. It looks like everyone is against Christ in some way, and he stands alone in righteousness. It looks like he's surrounded by sinners of all sorts, none of whom fully understand who he is or what he's doing or how they're supposed to live in light of his lordship. And so as Judas hands Jesus over to the authorities, Jesus hands himself over to make his way to the cross. There he hangs alone in his innocence, alone in his blamelessness, alone in his righteousness. There he shouts, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There he declares, It is finished. For he has accomplished salvation for all who have been caught up in the power of darkness and sin. Malchus' healing 
foreshadows everybody else's. For we are all the opposition. We are all sinners. We are all enemies of the crucified one. Enemies that Christ has healed. Enemies that Christ has repaired. Enemies that Christ has restored. Enemies that Christ has renewed. Enemies that Christ has redeemed. Enemies that Christ has reconciled. While we were enemies, says Romans 5, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. By His wounds, we are healed. By His wounds, we are healed and forgiven of our sins. By His wounds, we are healed so we can participate in bringing healing to others. By His wounds, we are healed so we can become blessed peacemakers. By His wounds, we are healed so that we can love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. By His wounds, we are healed so we can carry out a ministry of reconciliation in His holy name. By His wounds, we are healed to enjoy abundant life on earth and everlasting life in heaven by the wounds of the great physician, by the wounds of the Prince of Peace, by the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are healed. Amen.